This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. Today is January 5th. 2023. It feels good to say that, Simone. I haven't seen your face in so long. I miss you, brother. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Yeah, it's fun to uh, get our first recording of the year going. Although I did record with Dan from our real estate show, the Canadian Real Estate Investor, yesterday, but that will be out later this month. But it's the first one we're doing for back to our regular schedule. You got any fun goals for the year? They're probably all dad related. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that'll be, uh, you know, getting air into daycare. That's actually, we've already found daycare, which is a big thing if I know some newer parents. But aside from that, a few financial goals that I'm sure I'll be talking about on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. Just I think it's encouraging for people. And yeah, maybe looking for a new house towards the end of the year. So just that's it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The kid is crushing it. Congratulations. Well, welcome everyone back to the show. I mean, if you've been listening, You haven't missed a beat because we don't miss shows here on the Canadian Investor Podcast. We're here Mondays and Thursdays no matter what. We pull absolute backflips to make sure that the show goes on. But here we are recording and fresh for the year. So I'm going to kick it off with our first segment of 2023 with something called What Not to Expect in 2023. I was fascinated by this data set. The data set that I'm going to show you, it's almost unbelievable. Like the first time you hear it, you're like, I I need to see this data set before you can really wrap your head around it. So I've always been kind of fascinated by the concept of annual stock market returns because it's generally a pretty arbitrary time frame, but it's the cadence of our planet naturally and is the human condition at this point. But typically on a 12 month time period, you know, you're going to hear the 8 to 10% range for the stock market performance historically, like on an annual basis. What do you think? Like when you think of the S&P and you're going to own it for the next 40 years, like what are you kind of conservatively pushing out there? Like 8, 9? What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think you know me well enough that I try to plan for like kind of more conservative. So I probably would aim towards like 7, 8. I know historically yeah. it's probably closer to 10%. So I'm well aware of that. It's just I do- After divs, total return, yeah, it's closer to 10, but I get the conservative yeah. mindset. Makes sense. Exactly. I like to under-promise to myself and then over-deliver, which is a key- and It's a smart know, man. It's a great thing to do in customer service for those of you in that industry. <laughs> There you go. That's, that's actually a good point. Yeah. So, like, you know, you'll hear the S&P does historically 9% a year, 10% a year. And that is true. That is statistically what the S&P and the you know, broader equity markets have produced, especially for US markets. And so, that's totally correct. But statistically, you rarely ever get anything close to performance in that range. So from Ben Carlson's blog, I've gotten to know those guys. They all have their own blogs and they're from, oh, what's wide? What am I forgetting? Ben Carlson, a wealth of common sense. Yeah, that's, that's their blog. That's their blog. And those guys over there, they crush it. And he says, in fact, going back to 1928, there has only been one single year 
that falls between 8 and 10% in 1993 when the stock market, when the S&P 500 was up 9.97% in one year. That is mind-blowing. There's only been one year since 28, 1928 that the S&P 500 has produced a number between 8 and 10%, and it was in 1993 where the market was up 9.97%. He goes on to say, most of the time, the stock market is up big or down big from 1928 to 2022. 70% of all years have seen double digit gains or losses, including 2022. So you can see here with the, the chart that I've put up from his blog, kind of the distributions of historical performance in the S&P 500 since 1928. And it, it is baffling. I mean, it's true. The market's usually up big or down big, but on the long run and historically, you're going to get those market returns. And I think this is statistically insane and an important reminder, right, Simon? Because what has been the common theme of this podcast is that volatility is the only thing that you should expect to be completely normal. Right. Like, you know, people always say, oh my God, the market's crazy this year. It's like, that's normal. That's the only thing that you should come to really expect as normal. Yeah, exactly. And I think I, I remember when I see these kind of percentages, I always think of about Howard Marks and how he will say, I think it was one of his book on market cycles and the, the full title, I kind of forget here, but. It always stuck with me because he says the market's like a pendulum, right? So it tends to overshoot one way or the other. It's rarely just kind of at the bottom type of deal if you think of a pendulum. So it's either too pessimistic on one hand or too positive on the other. So you have to try and make your investments with that in mind. And I think there's probably a case right now that you know, it's too pessimistic. There's probably a case to be made that it's just about right. And I'm sure I've seen some people make the case that it's still too positive because you're going to see businesses who will have their earnings reduced this year. So I think it's that's probably the hardest thing is identify where we are in that kind of pendulum. I was interviewed yesterday from Wealth Simple's team because they were asking like a few people in this space. You know, obviously, they know about the podcast. And this is for their newsletter. And they're like, we're just asking a few people in the space, like what indicators they're looking at or what they expect for 2023 in, in the stock market and in, in the Canadian stock market. And I'm like, let me give you some statistics here. There is zero, zero correlation between the previous year's stock market performance and the next year. If you put out a scatter plot, there is Literally zero R correlation that defines the data whatsoever that links the previous year's performance and as an indication for the next year's. It is a total crapshoot. The data tells you nothing and there is no correlation. So that's an important reminder, right? Like, here's another fun fact that Ben Carlson also pointed out. He goes, There is literally no statistical correlation as well, or very little for in the short term for a reduction in earnings like a recessionary period and that year's performance. And you and I know that the market is a great, efficient, long-term measure of earnings growth, but it's a horrible short-term measure of earnings growth. 
So yeah, let's just round up this piece with one more thing he says here. Most of the big moves have been to the upside with more than one third of all calendar year returns, ending with gains of 20% or more. So we saw that last year, not last year, but the year before and the year before. 2019, I had, I think I was up like 30% in 2019. But given, you know, all of that big ups, big losses, almost half of all years ended in the red with losses of 10% or worse. So yeah, I think this is a really statistically important reminder that one, that there's no correlation if you put out a scatter plot of previous year's performance and next year's. Trying to kind of extrapolate that data is a sucker's game. And being up big or being down big, statistically, since 1928, is the norm. And it rarely kind of comes in at that nice sweet spot that we all hope it would. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I mean, I like to look at the past year, not necessarily calendar year, because calendar years can also be affected by tax loss harvesting, right? Especially if you're looking at a pretty bad year overall. So there could be some downward pressure just because of that towards the end of the year. But I do like, and I've talked about it before, look at the past year or so, look at the different sectors and see which one have really been hammered. And there's been quite a few last year, definitely, because obviously we're looking at the last year because, you know, 2022 or so early in. But I like to look at that because I find oftentimes if you're looking at good value, that'll be a good indication of where you can find it, of course, with the caveat that not all business are the same in each sector. So there will probably be some value traps there. But there's probably going to be some good businesses. And that's what I talk with Dan in the read episode is I think there's some good opportunities in the REIT space because it's been so hammered and there's some really good REITs out there. Not all of them again, but uh, that's something I like to do personally. Yep. Totally agreed. All right, let's hit your first section, your first segment of 23. I'm all, I'm all ears. Yeah, so the first segment, I think this one is going to be fun. So it's I titled it A New Year's Resolution You Can Follow. Obviously, the caveat, this is not investment advice, but I've had feedback, and I'm sure you have as well, where people say they just don't have a lot of money to invest. Some people say with inflation, especially, or they're students, they just graduated, they don't have a lot of spare money, so they can only do $50, $100 a month, something like that. Or with inflation, people's costs are rising, expenses are rising, so they have less money available. And I know it's easy to get into the mindset of, well, I can only invest 50 or $100, like it's not really worth it, right? So my goal here is just to encourage people to do it. I will be doing that for the very long term. I'll be doing it in my TFSA. So what I'll be doing is I'll put $50 every month on January. I'll do it on the 20th of every month. Of course, if it falls a Saturday or a Sunday, I'll just do it the next business day on the Monday. And I'll be doing it in the ETF VEQT. So this is a Vanguard. It's a broad-based ETF. So the other, I did a post on Twitter asking people for some suggestion. I think you responded. You said XEQT was one of them that you were, you thought was really good. I think they're both very good options, to be honest. The reason I decided to go with VEQT is because I like the allocation just a bit better, although it's quite similar. Those two ETFs are- Is great. it just a little bit more skewed to the US? Well, you'll see. So it's uh, there's uh, some exposure 
exposure. So I'll get to the exposure a little bit here, okay. but it's slightly different. The US is actually quite similar here. So those two ETFs, the first requirement when I posted was that, you know, it has to be under $100 because that was what I had in mind here. They don't require a big dollar investment. So you can dollar cost average, even if you only put $50 every month, for example, you can do it. You can basically buy a share. Obviously, you want to make sure that for the most part, your brokerage doesn't charge any fees for ETFs, which is pretty common in Canada. Now, they both have almost identical US exposure. Where it does differ a bit is VQT has more exposure to Canada and emerging markets, whereas XCQT has more exposure to developed countries excluding North America. So that's kind of the biggest divergence out of the two. I do like the Canada part a little more, even though we've been a bit critical about home country bias in the past. If people have been listening for a bit, they're aware of that. Just because I think Canada should benefit in the next decade or so from its commodities. So I actually prefer that over having more exposure to Europe, for example. That's kind of the big difference here. Now, the expense ratio or the fees, the management expense ratio is almost identical, although slightly higher for VQT at 24 basis points. So that's 0.24%, whereas XCQT is 0.20%. But it's a small enough difference that at this point, I think you should really focus on which one that you prefer in terms of allocation, to be honest. Do you agree with that? Four basis points? It's low enough? I actually disagree. I think okay. that they're, I just looked at them. I think that they're close enough that I'd rather just try to save four bips on the management ratio because they're, they're almost identical. Like yeah, I mean, there's a 10% different if you look at the emerging markets, develop ex-US Canada. So that's where the 10%, right? There's actually a 10% divergence in the allocation. Wait, which one has more exposure to emerging markets? The one I chose, so okay. EQT. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's 10%. Okay, I missed that. That's a yeah. little, You're right. That's a little bit more. Well, when you factor in both that and the developed countries ex-North America. Yeah. Okay, I understand. I still think I'd rather be more concentrated. Again, here's an important like little learning piece here is I see this so often. Like, If you handed me both ETFs and you're like, here's VEQT and XEQT, and you're like, I gave you this one. I'd be like, oh, okay, that's fine. Like, I don't really care. Like, they're so similar and the ratio is only four bips that like I have more things to think about than <laughs> they're, they're the same product, right? Like they're they're like for like product. And what I see people do is like they'll hear this segment and be like, shit, I own XEQT. Someone's talking about VEQT. Let me swap them. And like, you know, like do like all of this unnecessary trading and portfolio management when it's just like, man, they're the same thing. Like, don't sweat the small stuff. And this is totally the small stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I just because I'm starting from scratch. So personally, I prefer VQT for the reasons I mentioned. And the four basis points was not big enough for me to to not consider it. Obviously, if it was like 20 basis point, then it would be a different conversation right, right. for sure. Yeah. But you know, I just personally prefer the allocation a bit more. But for example, the US allocation is almost identical. Like, I think it's like a percent okay. different. It's really outside the US where it starts changing a little bit. But, you know, I'll just kind of stick to that. They're both, like I mentioned, they're both very good options, in my opinion. And the current price of EQT is around $32. Chances are that I will buy one share on January 20th, of course. Then the remaining amount, I'll just roll over to February. So 
For example, if I have enough for two shares on February 20th, assuming that's not a weekend, I'll be able to buy the two shares because at that point I'll add $50 plus 18, so a total of $68. So there's a good chance I would be able to buy two. And that's what you have to do, right? If you want a dollar cost average, because rarely, unless you have access to partial shares, which is not common in Canada, you'll rarely have enough to buy, you know, <laughs> if your dollar cost average like a set amount every month, you're probably going to always have a little excess money or rolled over money from the previous month. So what I'll be doing is I will track the returns. I'll talk to it, you know, on the podcast, probably every couple months, maybe once a quarter. I'll do it as well on join TCI for those who are members of that probably a bit sooner, depending on when we post and when we talk about it on the podcast, but I will talk about it on the podcast so people can definitely follow along, especially those who don't have that much money to invest, right? So I think it's important. And if you're wondering, okay, $50 is not much, what's the point? Well, I just did a compound interest calculator. If you're doing $50 over 30 years at 8% return, which I think is fairly reasonable, like we talked a bit earlier, you'd be looking at a total value of $70,000 and actually $70,427. And that's starting from $0. So it's not like you had five grand already started put in there. You're starting from scratch from zero. So if you're, you know, you don't have much money, I think uh, you can definitely do some good things if you're consistent, even if it's a small amount. I love this segment because it's so true. Like the barriers to entry here are basically zero, right? The key here, I think that you talked about, but definitely needs a double click on is free to buy ETFs in your brokerage if you're going to run this strategy. <laughs> yeah. That's a must. Oh, yeah. Because you're paying like 10% fees or at least maybe more on a 20%. Looking at like more actually. Oh, yeah. If you do the math yeah. on, a, on a $50 share and you're only doing one share at once a month. So with that caveat, you're looking at basically next to no fees. You're going to pay, okay, 20 basis points or 24 basis points on VEQT you get global exposure to the equity markets and you don't need to own anything else really like you're more diversified than me by a country mile if you only own that one ETF <laughs> yeah exactly 1 million percent it's like thousands it's like tens of thousands of stocks held in in XEQT for instance it's incredible yeah and if i can do it you know you can do it as well even if you have 50 dollars. and that there's a reason i chose 50 dollars because i know it's not a big amount i didn't choose 150 they're denominated in canadian dollars these etfs as well so you don't have to do any conversion you can just buy it like Braden said make sure you don't have any fees because yeah, it's not it's gonna not gonna turn out very well yeah that math doesn't work very quickly if you're paying 10 bucks a trade all right let's look at at the year that was the year of anti-ESG, for those who are not familiar with ESG, it's environmental social governance, and it is a buzzword E across corporates, across financials. It is the buzzword of all buzzwords, and it just means socially responsible capital allocation in the, in the investment business. And... That's all fine and dandy. I think that people, you know, putting their capital behind things that they believe in is something I certainly believe in. I think that that makes sense if you're going to put capital into something in terms of a specific business, 
a specific sector, you'd hope you believe in that sector and then feel good about owning it. So that's all fine and dandy. 2022 was the year of anti-ESG. Let's look at the performance. The SPY, the S&P 500, closed down 20% last year. Let me give you three businesses. ExxonMobil finished up 74% on the year. British American Tobacco finished up 18% on the year, which by the way, Having 18% performance on a year the S&P's down 20 is gigantic outperformance. Lockheed Martin finished up 37%. And so if you look at those sectors, weapons like, you know, Lockheed Martin, energy, oil and gas, and cigarettes. If you were <laughs> if you were all in on anti-ESG and sin stocks, gambling did pretty well. You crushed it. You had massive outperformance if you were long weapons, energy, and cigarettes. And I just looking at this data on this table that I have here on the dock, it's like mind bending how big of a gap there really was. Yeah, Lockheed Martin, I would say they probably got a big boost from, unfortunately, obviously, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine. So that's not a surprise. I, as you were talking, I just kind of looked at the returns for the past year for uh, Brookfield Renewable Partners, because I'm like, it fits in, but they never really sold it as like, they never really pushed An ESG, ESG play. right? Yeah. Because I mean, I think it was just obvious that it's renewable energy. They did actually, you know, I have it in my portfolio, but they did decent. They were down 18% last year, excluding dividends. So if you had in yeah, the dividends. Yeah, it's a utility. Yeah. I mean, you'd, that's yeah. a pretty like brutal year for utility. Oh, no, no, exactly. I'm not saying, but they, you know, if you include dividend, probably down about like 14, 15%, I would say, which is, you know, it, <laughs> for 2022 is actually pretty good. So. We'll take what we can get, my dude. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's it for the segment. I just thought it was funny because it was literally like if you were long anti-ESG and you were long sin stocks, you had quite the year. You, you know, you could have passed out for the entire year, never look at your brokerage, and you checked your statement, you're like, wow, stock market was rocking this year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when we did the year in review, right, that's why the Canadian market did so well is because, yeah. you know, commodities really performed quite well last year. So that's why Canada and the uh, TSX outperformed the S&P 500. Okay, so now I'm going to talk here of uh, something that's making a bit more news because it sounds like it will be happening on April 1st, 2023 from what I've read. So it's the tax-free first home savings account, the FHSA. I'll probably stumble a few times because I'm so used to saying TFSA, but the FHSA. So I wanted to talk about that because obviously people that are listening to us, I know there's some younger people. I know there are some people saving to buy a home. So I want wanted to talk about how this account will be working. Essentially, it's a mix. It's a mash of an RRSP and TFSA together. So you kind of get benefits of both. To be eligible, you have to be a resident of Canada, be at least 18, and it's a first-time home buyer. However, First-time homebuyer is kind of a loose uh, definition. It just means that you or your spouse must not have 
owned a home as a principal place of residence the year it was open, the account itself, and the preceding four years. So between four and five years, depending on when you opened that or when you last owned a home. And so that's something just to keep in mind. So if you had a home seven years ago, sold this seven years ago, you'd be eligible for this according to the eligibility criteria. This is a... Dude, I'm just learning about this from the for the very first time right now. So I'm I'm just I'm just being educated at the moment. Yeah, so the the federal government, I think they announced that prior to the last election. I mean, it was part of the platform, one of the big things for the the liberals. I know they got roasted pretty badly because people are like, well, I don't have any money to save it. It's so expensive, right? So what's the point of this? But I th- Still think, I mean, if you're looking to buy a home, you'll see that it's it's a pretty interesting vehicle. So the account, like I said, it's a mix of RSP and TFSA. Contributions to the FHSA will reduce your taxable income just like an RSP. Income and gains inside the account as well as withdrawals are tax-free just like a TFSA. You can contribute up to $40,000 over your lifetime and up to $8,000 in any one year, including 2023, even though the rules or the accounts won't go live until April 1st, 2023. You can carry over up to $8,000 of unused annual contribution to use in a later year. The carry forward amounts don't start until you've actually opened the FHSA account. And then as an example here, if you open an account 2023 and you only contribute 4000 out of the 8000 that you're eligible, that means that you'll carry over the remainder, so 4000 the next year, and you'll be able to contribute $12,000 in total in 2024, $4,000 plus $8,000. You can hold the same types of investment you would own in a TFSA, which... Could be a little bit dangerous for people, I guess, <laughs> just depending, right? Depending how much money you have, because if you're kind of putting money in there in some pretty risky assets, I mean, I guess you're just trying like, you know, I guess going for a Hail Mary or something to, to try and buy a home. I think you know, people will have to be kind of careful on what type of assets they put in there, especially whether if they're really close to having the money or they're kind of thinking of using this account like seven, eight, nine years down the line. Can I combine this with first time home buyers in my RSP? I don't know. That's a good question. I'll have to look into that. I don't want to tell people something I don't know. So I really don't know, but yeah, that's a good no, question. No, fair enough. Well, it's, I wouldn't see why not. I, but, I don't yeah. know. I literally know nothing about this vehicle. Yeah. When they come out with their political campaigns and they say, oh, yeah, we're going to do this. I literally just I just block out until they actually put yeah. something in because who knows if it actually comes in. So if, it comes, if it's actually coming in, now it's time to do the work on it. I think putting... Like if you can combine it with first time home buyers, I think it sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. No, I'll have a look. I don't see why not, but again, I don't know for sure. So definitely do your research if that's something you're interested in. Now the withdrawals, this is where it gets not tricky, but this is where the too good to be true kinda, you know, comes back down to earth here. So withdrawals to buy a qualifying home purchase or not taxable, like I mentioned earlier, but the withdrawal must meet the following criteria. You must be a first-time home buyer when you make the withdrawal. You must have a written agreement to buy or build a qualifying home before October 1st of the year following the year of withdrawal. You must intend to occupy the home as a principal place of residence within one year after buying or building it. If you have any funds left over after the withdrawal, they can be transferred to an RSP or RIF, penalty-free and tax-deferred. So that's that's where... 
you know, and it starts to look a bit more like an RSP. So if you don't use the funds, which makes sense, right? You got the tax credit. The whole intent here is to help people buy a home, save money for a home. It's tax-free if you use it towards a home. But if you're just using it as a savings account for whatever reason, it's going to be treated like an RSP. So that's what you need to remember. The funds must be used to buy a home within the following time frame, whichever comes first. By the end of the 15th year that the FHSA has been open or at the end of the year you turn 71 again the RSP kind of <laughs> language kind of comes in here and if you withdraw the money from the account and end up not using it on a home purchase you'll have to pay taxes on it so basically it starts at income tax yeah exactly so it's, it's basically just like an RSP right so if you have money in RSP yeah. you withdraw it you know I have money in RSP, I could withdraw it tomorrow, it's fine, I can, but it's going to be added to my taxable income, and it's the same thing here. So, you know, I'll I'll hand it to, because obviously the government's announced it, but it's not them who create all the rules. I'm sure it's bureaucrats or people that are, you know, in this space. And, you know, it makes a whole lot of sense, if you ask me. Uh, I think they seem to have covered any type of potential abuses of that account. I'll just say that, yeah. So can we just... Go back. It says eligibility wise here, you or your spouse must not have owned a home as a principal place of residence the year it was opened. The year it was opened being the account, right? Yeah. So basically, it's yeah, the account exactly. So the FHSA. So basically, if you, you open the account this year, so you have to make sure you have a home in 2023 and the previous four years. Previous before four that. years. Yeah. You or your spouse, what if yeah. you've owned a home? And your spouse has not in the past four years. It's you or your spouse. So it sounds so you'd like you, you'd be disqualified because one of you two have owned it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah you owe oh, that yeah. language, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, dude, when I read this stuff, I go fully into a mental pretzel. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Well, essentially, it's just to be like, you know, I bought a house last year. And then my spouse has never bought a house. I'm kind of using her to be able to do that. I think they want to prevent that because, you know, then that would probably present some some right. abuse opportunities for people. Right, right. Well, you will not be eligible, but my peasant ass will be 100% eligible for, for all this kind of stuff. Let's talk about Tesla. Let's talk about Tesla. We haven't talked about Tesla in quite a while. And Tesla's been getting hammered, to say the least. And I don't want to pick on Tesla. This is actually a big segment about auto as well. So I'll talk about Tesla, but then I'm going to talk about auto. And I, I think I think they could be in for a real tough stretch in the auto s- sector. Not just Tesla, just the entire segment, including used cars. I have been very historically bearish on Tesla stock for a variety of reasons. They are in a short version I don't want to own any auto OEMs. Like I don't want to own any of them. And especially at that valuation that it had hit, that's no secret. It's gone from a, a very loved retail stock from retail investors, very popular, an extremely overcrowded trade to say the least. Hit $1 trillion in market cap. Remember that? It made no sense based on the fundamentals. And I'm talking about someone who like lived and breathed in the auto sector as an engineer for a while. The margins are terrible. I think that going down the supply chain is actually better than owning the OEMs, like, like a Magna, for instance. It just 
is what it is. The market finally agreed with some sort of reasonability here, and the stock is down 70% from April of 2022, which is quite significant. And this is old. I think it had been getting smoked already in the first couple trading days. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. In before the Tesla bro haters come after me, don't hear what I'm not saying. I love the cars. I think they're brilliant. I think they're amazing. If you've ever gotten a chance to drive one, they're a joy to drive. And if you haven't caught a chance, try one. It's a wonderful experience. Like it just feels amazing. Driving them feels amazing. The instant torque, it's it's wonderful. And say what you want about Elon Musk. He's the embodiment of many things I believe in, which is build amazing things and don't be afraid to make some mistakes and fail because he has already had so many fair shares of mistakes. But what's the result of that? Building life-changing technology and every once in a while falling flat on his face. He's my kind of people. People try to bend the world and, and I certainly believe that he's doing that for the better with Tesla and SpaceX. Say what you want about the guy. I don't care. That's my opinion. And here's some credit. Investors have done exceptionally well owning Tesla. Even with this drawdown, you have made 7x your money since 2019. That is insane outperformance. All right. So now that that's out of the way. The Tesla stock fanboys, don't come after me. Y'all deserve your credit and don't hear what I'm not saying. I actually applaud your conviction. Here's where things get kind of complicated. They have only delivered 1.2 million cars in the trailing four quarters as of today. Silly Arc and, and their cult has a bull case model at them selling 17 million cars by 2026. Like, man, let's actually just not even go there. 17 million per year? Per year. Per year. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know where the stock goes from here, but I think the car market has a very rough go across the board. The auto market has a tough stretch, whether it's used cars, new cars, the OEMs in particular. I think that they have a rough time. Now, and this is a car company. Don't get it twisted. Tesla's a car company. The narrative around the energy storage, sure, maybe it has legs, but it only makes up 4% of the top line revenue today and has negative operating margins. So let's just, let's just shut that door right away. Higher rates get lots of discussion on how it's affecting the housing market. But oh my goodness, it crushes auto probably a lot more. Rates on car financing have gone from next to zero to if you have a perfect credit score, here, sir, here's your 8% loan. And if you're on an alternative lender, like many people are, you're looking well into the double digits in financing rates on on a new car, on a depreciating asset. That brand new $70,000 car just got a heck of a lot more expensive. Used car prices are falling off a cliff for good reasons, including the supply chain kind of being flushed out, being fixed from the problems that we had. I don't see a world where auto doesn't have a really, really rough go over the next 24 months. That's what I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially, personally, I think we're going to hit a recession this year. It just depends how severe it is, and I have no idea. At this point, we'll see. I think it's almost consensus, which is pretty rare around economists. And even, you know, if you talk to various CEOs, that's what they'll tell you. So clearly, if people need to make cuts, you know, delaying a purchase of a car is an easy one, right? 
Yeah. So I think that's something. I've also, I don't know if it's anecdotal. We have a used car dealership not far from our place. And I've noticed they have quite a few Teslas and they've been sitting on the lot for actually some time now. So I know used car financing is even more expensive than new cars in general. So I don't know if it's just anecdotal here, but I wanted to add that. And I actually had a question for you. I was listening to another podcast and do you know the Twitter account Doomberg? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. So it's a group of, I think they're mostly, you know, people that have environmental or scientific backgrounds that run it. And he was saying, well, one of the ones, they, they stay anonymous, but he was saying that in his view, hybrid cars are actually more environmentally friendly. The reason is because the extraction of the materials required for these batteries and these all electric cars is super carbon extensive. And when you factor in with a hybrid vehicle that you can do, what, like 50 to 60 miles or 100 miles, depending on what the, the car is, right? And then you kind of kick in the gas if you need it. You still got to make a lithium battery for you those. You do, though. but the fact that it's much smaller, the view was that most of the time you'll only use the battery and it's much smaller. And once in a while, you'll use the gas for longer travels. So in his view is that... It was actually more environmental friendly when you factor in everything, the extraction of those materials and so on for hybrid cars. And the other thing he was saying that I think you'll like is that in his view, again, the answer and he he provided a lot of good data, but the answer for renewable or carbon emission reduction is nuclear. And that I love it. Yeah. And that he, he didn't really understand the push in the past like 10 decade or so of decommissioning some nuclear power plants. I think a lot of it was pushed because of the Fukushima or, you know, in Japan, what happened. Yeah, 2014. Yeah, and just saying that a lot of the kind of nuclear waste, you know, issue that people kind of bring up, where do you store it when you decommission it and so on, it's overblown. So anyways, I thought you'd like hearing that because you've been saying that. I could have a whole podcast segment agreeing with some of the, with some of those statements, especially around nuclear, because I worked in the biz for a bit there. I'd have to see some numbers on the the hybrid thing. I do think that plug-in hybrids are brilliant. That's what he was talking about, plug-in hybrids. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that they're brilliant for the reason of... It really helps people go from like having no confidence to, okay, I get it. And let me give you an example. I used to take one all the time for work to about 75 kilometers commute there and back to go to the nuclear, actually, ironically, to go to the nuclear plant here in Ontario. (laughs) And I used to take that trip from Toronto and I would go there and back on this plug-in hybrid, which had about 80 kilometers of electric before it switched to the gas. So I would go there and back and just use the battery. I never burned, you know, any fossil fuels because our grid during during that time if you're off peak, you're not generating off of any like nat gas. It's like just hydro and nuclear. Yeah. So that's that's good. And then I would go back and plug in the hybrid and the battery would get charged up. But if I had a change of plans, I'm not screwed because I would have like another 350 clicks of gas if I need it. And so range anxiety is zero because I still have 350 of gasoline and I can hit, you know, any gas station if needed. But I would do that trip all the time and not burn any fossil fuels. No, exactly. It's brilliant. Yeah. 
I'm all in. I'm all in on it. I love it. Yeah, and I think it's a great option for a lot of people who live around the city, right? They'll rarely do more than 50, 60 kilometers in one shot. So, and once in a while and that you think go- about the savings, man, like that, it's so cheap. Yeah, that's it. So I think personally, I don't know, like he had some numbers and I have to go back, right? Clearly, the guy knows what he's talking about. And I'm sure he can, they provide some good content for those who kind of want to get into learning more about that energy space and at times a bit controversial because it may not align with, you know, what you hear all the time on mainstream media, especially like the nuclear part, right? And I think the more I read about the nuclear aspect, the more I think it's definitely the solution going forward. Yeah. It just takes so long to fire one up. Like yeah. start yeah. engineering <laughs> now, start building in five years, completion in 10 or looking at net 15 years mm -hmm. you went 100% over budget <laughs> like the public hates you it's not perfect yeah I've, his argument was that uh, clearly they take more time to build but if governments really put emphasis on that i think a lot of the delays is regulation right and just kind of red tape going through the various governments and you know various regulatory bodies i know you know them better than i do so uh, clearly yeah. it still takes time but the decade could probably be reduced by a few years i'm gonna get too into the weeds here but 100 percent because for instance here the nukes in ontario are regulated by provincial federal and other bodies as well so you literally have like the intersection of a bajillion bureaucratic processes which, you know, the public probably appreciates quite a bit that the nukes are heavily regulated because we're talking about public safety here. But yeah, yeah anyways. Yeah, sorry. Right, let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's move on yeah. there. I know. I I, dude, I love it. That, because that's my bad. We hadn't planned about that. I just kind of, yeah, it was just on the <laughs> no, spot. I love so. it. I love it. Yeah. So the last thing it. here I wanted to talk about is just a quick clarification on my 2022 bold predictions that we went over, whether we met them or not. Someone on Twitter mentioned I left out that I was wrong on the 150k bitcoin prediction that i did last year so to be clear the reason i didn't talk about it is because i mostly referenced the notes we had done back then i did listen to the episode but just the beginning of the bold prediction then i would fast forward because obviously you know it is time consuming to do the notes and uh, so that's when i went on on it because in the notes originally my plan was to just talk about the CPP investing 0.5% of their assets into Bitcoin. But then on the spot, I added that if they do that, it would hit 150K. So, you know, just want to tell people I wasn't trying to hide my prediction. <laughs> that was not the case. I think people know me, know I'm very transparent and honest. I don't want to, you know, hide anything. But the main... To be fair, the main prediction here was CPP investing $2.5 billion, which was 0.5% of its asset in Bitcoin. And if that happened, it would hit 150K. Clearly, none of these things happen. <laughs> you know? Although, take, take the L. <laughs> you know, I could just say I missed it by a zero. Just zero. Yeah, was just remove one zero. Days? Yeah, it's about yeah. like 16, 17. So I got pretty Dude, close. What, you know, tomato, tomato. What's, what's a, a hundred... 10x yeah what's a 10x difference like exactly i don't know it. nothing nothing no nothing you know i mean look people people know you and and they know that we're not trying to 
spew a bunch of garbage and they know that our bold predictions are, are supposed to be bold and and we're we're out here to educate and entertain you gotta you gotta have a healthy balance of educate or entertain or else you know once listen to a boring podcast exactly i don't listen to a boring podcast hell no and i don't know about you but i almost enter these bold predictions it would like I'll say something that I know I'm like, I have a high likelihood of being wrong. Like that's usually I, how yeah, I almost. It's not spicy enough. Yeah, exactly. If not, it's not fun. Clearly, I would have liked it to go 150K because I have a decent size allocated to Bitcoin, but it hasn't. And that's fine. I mean, I'm sure I'll have some bold predictions that come true, and I'm sure I'm going to whiff on most of them anyways going forward. If you hit all of them, then they're not bold. You're either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you either have a crystal ball or you have a yeah, like we're reporting you to the Illuminati if they're all right or they're just not bold enough. All right, thank you so much for listening to today's show. We are here Mondays, Thursdays. We got big plans for the pod. We got huge plans for the pod. We're talking video. We got on the call here producer Mel She's repping the show and she's going to be uh, helping us out quite a bit and being in the background of these calls and, you know, potentially some huge interviews as well. Maybe I'm not going to say yet, you know, you got to keep listening, but there is going to be some really nice improvements to the show this year that we're pumped about. And better audio, so we're also investing in, in new mics. So I have a nice, not fully finished, but my podcast studio, I'm recording from there. You sound good. Yeah, I have a new mic. It's going to get better as I get more uh, soundproofing, which I was able to do with the help of our Canadian real estate investor podcast sponsor, Sonopan. So a big thank you to that. Yeah. Shout out to Anapan. Yeah, shout out to them. But I'll send a picture on Twitter when it's uh, fully done with a nice picture of the canadian investor podcast that i got for christmas so it's gonna your be parents like, got you a, a big sign for the podcast right yeah exactly so it's gonna look really great when we start doing those kind of videos and for people to look at you know hopefully we'll have some charts so put in some visuals as well so people have a better idea what it were uh, uh, the various charts that Braden pulls from stratosphere <laughs> <laughs> tons of charts so i was showing mel like hey this is the document that we we work off of it's now on version three because we broke Google Docs already three times. And this one's on what, page 406? There's just so many charts, so many visuals. We need to use those because they're good content. So that's good. All right. Thanks for listening so much. If you have not checked out stratosphere.io, someone, have you tried out the dashboard yet? I got to show you the dashboard. Uh, no, this. I haven't, but I'm meaning to try it. Yeah. We just launched it yesterday and you can pull in a dashboard of like your portfolio or a watch list and it'll give you like a notification feed. So when I go on here, it says that we just got a new transcript for the Home Depot, the quarterly report for a Costco, oh, nice. a press release from Adobe, and it just brings it into one feed. So I, I don't have to, like, I feel like I, I now have one centralized hub for like investor relations for like hundreds of companies just in one place. And it's right in the app. And oh man, it's sexy. So that's a strategy. Do you have it set up for a steer or also known as face drive? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to put face drive. Their press releases must be interesting. It's like we've changed our corporate name again to scam <laughs> investors again. <laughs> they should just put that out there. So let's go check that out. Stratosphere.io. It's free, but if you get the paid plan, you can see everything in one place, like everything you'd ever want. And of course, you can always use code TCI for 15% off any paid plan. We appreciate you. We'll see you more this year. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice.
Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.